Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your host, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and it's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you so much, and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel and living. And, dear, I know we have a great show lined up today. Thanks, dear. Today's World Footprints travels the Underground Railroad through Norfolk, Virginia, offers up teen travel safety tips, and demystifies autism. First, the Norfolk, Virginia area is best known for its nautical history. But did you know that it was an important stop on the Underground Railroad for slaves escaping from the south to the north? Norfolk State University's Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander joins us to discuss Norfolk's important role in the Underground Railroad. And as we race to summer, many teens from across America will be packing their bags and exploring various destinations around the world. Given recent headlines from Japan and the Middle East, traveling safely abroad is paramount in the minds of many families. Mike Bowers of People to People's Ambassador Programs share some sage advice about what teens need to know to stay safe when traveling abroad and what their parents need to do to have some peace of mind. Finally, Adelphi University's Dr. Stephen Shore is an expert on autism. From his personal challenges with autism to his work with others, Dr. Shore takes us inside the world of autism and how lives are being changed through research and support groups all around the world. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing on World Footprints. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. Also, there's a Contact Us page on our website at worldfootprints.com where you can connect with us. And if you want to follow us in real time, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, particularly when we travel. And there's links to those social networks and our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. Although the Underground Railroad has been covered in many dissertations, books, and publications, there are still many stories that have yet to be told, including the role that cities like Norfolk, Virginia played in the Underground Railroad. As 2011 marks the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, Norfolk is being highlighted as one of the last points, or actually the last point of departure in the South before slaves made their way north. As a testament to this history, Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander, a professor of history at Norfolk State University and the city of Norfolk, recently debuted Waterways to Freedom, a self-guided tour taking visitors through the city's role in the Underground Railroad. Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Now, what prompted you to create the Waterways to Freedom Tour? Well, you know, as a, as a historian and, and very much a community activist, it had uh, concerned me that so many people didn't know any of this history about the area. Uh, we're an unusual place in that there are a number of prominent people in the nation who've actually come from Norfolk. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that the young people as well as the general population 
knew how important this area has been and still and continues to be uh, to the nation at large. And so uh, because I've been doing a, a lot of work on, um, because my specialty is Virginia history, mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of work on the local community, um, I wanted to bring out some of these stories. And so I, I uh, was asked to be a part of a committee headed by Donna Allen, who's the Vice President for Sales and Marketing at Visit Norfolk. And I started talking about some of these stories, and it so intrigued her that we got together when uh, we when I received a grant from the National Park Service to do a symposium on the local Underground Railroad Network. And, um, and I said I wanted to create a map, and then from the map, uh, a website, an interactive website, was created. Now, th- this tour is self-guided. What are some of the, I, I believe, um, what are some of the points of interest that travelers will discover along the tour? Well, you know, the, the first thing that people are going to be struck with is that many of these buildings no longer exist. Uh, and, and that's why it's important for them to have on the, um, as part of the self-guided tour, what the area looked like 150 years ago and what it looks like today, where these important sites are located. And so one of the first things that uh, people will notice is that uh, Norfolk was a walking city in the antebellum period. And, and as a walking city that was essentially four square miles, uh, much, of it, much of the city was focused on the waterfront. And that's where so many people obviously escaped. Uh, in fact, the mythology, and there are many, but one of the mythologies about the Underground Railroad is that the majority of people escaped on foot. Mm-hmm. And that was just not the case. They escaped aboard ships. And they escaped, in some cases, in large numbers. There were some individual escapees, but, but uh, uh, especially aboard these schooners, um, captained by men such as William Bayless and Alfred Fountain. They actually created special compartments aboard their ship where as many as 20, 22 people could be hidden inside of those compartments. And William Still, who was the station master of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia, he was also the secretary of their vigilance committee, is the one who helps to uh, inform us about some of these escapes in his notes that were later reprinted uh, in a book entitled The Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it might surprise some to, to, to learn or even consider that uh, people like captains, you know, the various captains who, who helped uh, slaves escape were actually uh, compassionate. You know, when, when you think about the South, it, you don't think about um, generally... You know, individuals back at that time um, being, you know, supportive of the, uh, the efforts to, to escape to freedom. Uh, but I know you, you've had to uncover some wonderful and surprising stories uh, as part of your research. Can you, can you talk about some of those things that, that have really resonated with you, some of those stories that have really resonated with you? 
certainly. Well, you know, uh, a lot of the people who did help uh, enslaved people escape um, actually got paid money in, in a lot ah, of cases so to well, help them. It wasn't altruism altogether, huh? Well, <laughs> it, it was a combination because even with the money, um, the risks were tremendous. Um, and there's the, the case of the uh, Keziah, which was a schooner uh, captained by William Bayless. This is a schooner out of Delaware. Um, and uh, they were captured, uh, and, and William Bayless was sentenced to the Virginia Penitentiary for two, 10 years, which at that time was a death sentence. Very few people survived even a couple of years in the in the prison and his family worked very hard trying to get him out and really it was the the civil war that provided him with a reprieve from the 10-year sentence um, but a lot of these people were paid um, anywhere from 25 to sometimes a hundred dollars which in our dollars you know translates into about a thousand dollars if it's if it's as much as a hundred dollars and and some of these enslaved people um, hired out their time and they acquired the money that way in other cases they simply stole it from the owners that they felt uh, were abusing them anyway um, and they they felt very justified in taking this money to to gain their freedom but to to give you um uh, uh, one example, well, actually, there's so many, but one of the earliest examples that hit the national press was um, the escape of a husband and wife, George and Rebecca Latimer. And these two individuals left from Norfolk in, in 1842 after, after attempting to escape several times. And they were very young. Um, uh, they were in their early 20s. And what propelled them to escape was that Rebecca was became pregnant and told her husband that she would not have a child born in slavery. Uh, and so on the self-guided tour, it tells you where he worked. And we don't know what ship he escaped on. In fact, with all of the national press about his escape, he just says he escaped aboard a ship. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ended up in Boston. Uh, and then in Boston, on the on I think it was the first day he was there, he was spotted on the streets by a man who used to work for his owner, and his owner came up to Boston demanding that his slave be um, returned to him and uh, extradited back to Virginia. And there were abolitionists uh, in Boston at that time who refused to allow that to happen, so they trumped up some charges against him, claiming he had stolen something from them, and the constable put the owner, (laughs) James Gray, in jail up there in Boston. (laughs) And they basically visited him and told the abolitionists and told him, you know, uh, we'll make you a deal. You sell your slave for four hundred dollars, and um, and we'll let you out. <laughs> and he refused. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and they said, okay, well, we'll let you stay here for a little bit, and uh, then after, um, uh, and we'll come back and visit you after a while. And when they came back, he eventually agreed. Uh, and the money was actually raised by a black pastor at one of the churches in Boston. Mm. And he came back to Norfolk and protested, filed a lawsuit. In fact, uh, John Quincy Adams got involved in the lawsuit. Uh, in the end, um, and, and by the way, James Gray was only the master of, of George Latimer. In the end, uh, the courts ruled in George Latimer's favor. 
but Latimer was afraid that he would um, be kidnapped into slavery. Mm-hmm. And so he and his wife um, lived uh, quietly in Chelsea, although he did return back to Boston sometime. And they had four children. And the youngest of the four was uh, a young man by the name of Louis Latimer, who would later become the famous draftsman and inventor. Uh, he worked with Alexander Graham Bell, with Thomas Edison, and he was responsible for inventing the filament for the incandescent light bulb. Mm. You know, to think, what if, what if? Um, yes. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and that's what I, I really love about this particular tour, because it, it's more really more than about just about history it's the stories of of people's lives and how you know they affected our lives even to this day oh absolutely and and i do love to play that what if game with my students as well as whenever i'm lecturing in different venues about the underground railroad you know what if Rebecca and George did not um, make it to freedom. What if they were captured? More than likely, they would have been sold because George Latimer was actually sold um, to James Gray by his uncle. Uh, His Mm -hmm. uncle was his owner. And and so he had already been sold before. Uh, It would not have been unusual for his his current owner, who owned a sawmill in Norfolk, to have sold him had he been captured uh, Mm -hmm. trying to escape. So it it is a a very intriguing idea. Um, Some other um, examples of people who escaped, there's a man by the name of, uh, he changed his name to Thomas Bain, but his name was Sam Nixon. And along the the trail, uh, we identified where he lived with his owner. Uh, his owner was a dentist, uh, Dr. Martin. And Martin actually trained him or apprenticed him to be a dentist and sent him out at night on night calls. And so it wasn't unusual to see Sam Nixon, uh, uh, you know, going about the streets of Norfolk after curfew because Norfolk, like most cities, had a curfew not only for enslaved blacks but for free blacks as well mm-hmm. and and uh he used that as an opportunity to become a conductor on the underground railroad in the 1850s the early 1850s and he was helping a number of people escape and by being so close to the waterfront in fact looking at the map you see that a lot of people lived along main street well the the next street from main street going toward the water is 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 this long street we call today waterside drive but at that time it was wide water street and that's where all the docks were located so you were right there in proximity to all the activities of the waterfront and so nixon had an opportunity to encounter a number of ship captains stewards aboard ships, um, as well as other personnel who worked aboard these ships. And we know that these are the people who are involved in helping enslaved people escape. Mm-hmm. And, and Thomas uh, Bain, as he would later be known, uh, would actually, uh, once word got out that he was probably involved in the Underground Railroad, got aboard a steamship and went up to New Bedford, Massachusetts which at that time had become a a mecca for fugitive slaves. It's because uh, one of the pastors of, I believe, 12th Street Baptist Church up in Boston 
moved his congregation down to New Bedford because he was actually encouraging fugitive slaves to be in his church, and he was using his church as a vehicle of assisting fugitive slaves. And Boston, by the end of the 1840s, had become um, very pro-slavery because of the merchant activities. And so he moved it down to New Bedford, which is at the southernmost point of uh, Massachusetts. It's also a big whaling community. Uh, he moved them there. He moved his church there. And so it became a mecca for fugitive slaves. And the connection uh, with the Civil War is that New Bedford is the place where the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, Regiment was organized. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't even know about why New Bedford was chosen as the place to raise the first uh, African-American military unit for the Civil War. It's because it was the place where fugitive slaves dominated. And so Thomas Bain uh, was there in New Bedford. He finished his uh, apprenticeship as a dentist and opened up his practice there and was about to enter into uh, the ministry when the war started, and he enlisted in the 54th once it was organized in 1863, served in the military, and then at the end of the Civil War returned home and opened up his dental practice and then uh, became very active in uh, politics in Norfolk, eventually serving in the 1867-68 Virginia Constitutional Convention. And so that's an, another interesting story about a person. In fact, in, in uh, William Still's account, he even talks about how one of the um, uh, uh, white women who's a Quaker, uh, when she had encountered him uh, when he was making his escape, uh, she didn't believe that he was actually a fugitive slave because he was so articulate. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. he, and he was also a very, um, he had a very dominant personality. Mm -hmm. uh, and in her mind, all enslaved people were supposed to be um, uh, deferential. But he was completely the opposite. Uh, so there's a very interesting story about him in that particular um, uh, uh, in that particular account. Yeah. Now, now, are these stories shared as part of the the self guided tour? And, and, and if you can just help me with a, a little bit of the logistics of how this tour is. Um, is organized, whether there's kind of a um, an iPod audio um, uh, feature with it. And, um, and also, you know, I understand that some of the sites are not identified by historical marker yet, and so I'm wondering how uh, a traveler would identify those sites as, uh, during the course of a tour. Well, on the, um, if you were to do the tour online, uh, you have the the map, and you can click onto each of the different numbers that reflects uh, what whoever the individual was, or a certain like excuse me, a certain location or site um, of departure, and uh, and there you could actually read what happened. So there's a little blurb there, or you can click the audio. And there is a narration done by me about that particular site. Now, if you come to Norfolk, there is an iPod that you can use 
um, and the the um, the map that they have tells you how to access that. And you can actually take the map with you, and the map shows you both the current locations as well as the historic locations. So you can actually walk the route, which um, uh, is essentially from uh, close to Harbor Park, that that area where the passenger steamships were were docked, uh, all the way to this area around Nauticus. So it's about maybe a two mile walk mm-hmm. uh, where you can and it's it's and you can see it on the map that it's it's not a huge walk. But what's interesting is during this particular time that we've been continuing to do more research on this, uh, we've actually located uh, where the slave jail was, uh, was uh, situated in Norfolk. And ironically, we would see all these accounts of, well, you know, there's a slave market, there's a slave jail if somebody gets captured or, you know, or is attempting to run away, or perhaps there's a person who's visiting the area and they want to secure their slave, they place them in the slave jail. Well, we find Finally, through looking at deeds and so forth, found the locations of those. And so the map is currently being updated to include that information because these are sites that also symbolized uh, for many African Americans uh, the pain of slavery mm-hmm. because this is where family members uh, were pulled apart from one another, sometimes never to be seen again. And, and interestingly, they, they became the gathering sites uh, during the Civil War when Norfolk became an occupied city in May of 1863. They were the gathering sites uh, where, where soldiers would go out into the rural areas in and around the city of Norfolk and uh, bring in enslaved people into the city. And so those who were in the city would gather around these places to see if these folks who were coming in were long-lost family members who had been sold from them. And so there are lots of stories about how they saw their family members again or in some cases didn't see family members and the emotions surrounding that. So interestingly, these sites that were full of pain were in some ways, in, in some cases, transmuted into into cheerful and joyful reunions mm. for African Americans. Now, you mentioned uh, a website address. What what would what is that? Well, the the water. It, actually, if you want to, uh, the easiest way to get to the website is simply to type in "waterways to freedom," and that takes you um, straight to the um, uh, to the website that was created by um, uh, Visit Norfolk. Uh, but another way to get to it is uh, simply to, to type in www.visitnorfolktoday.com. Okay. And you can click then to Waterways to Freedom. Well, I mean, this is uh, certainly a tour that is worth visiting, whether virtually or uh, in 
in in live person uh, in Norfolk, which is a city that we uh, we've really come to love, and uh, I certainly encourage all of our listeners just to to experience a history, and it's our collective history. It's not just um, history for one segment of our population. It's our collective uh, uh, national history, and, and uh, certainly it's worth uh, exploring. And uh, Dr. Cassandra Nevi Alexander, thank you so much for sharing this uh, this piece of rich history with us and for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed that segment on Norfolk and the Underground Railroad, stay tuned for more on Norfolk on upcoming episodes of World Footprints Radio. After the break, we'll get some of the best practices from teen travel safety expert Mike Bowers that'll keep teens safe abroad and their parents calm at home. They get a call from a parent right before they go to bed and you know mom's telling them how much she misses them and all that and when they hang up then the kid is you know students laying in bed thinking about home and all of a sudden you know they find themselves with a bit of homesickness. Next on World Footprints Radio. Aloha! This is Danielle. Caleb. Mika. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. We love World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Okay, my name is Shane. I'm a Blackfoot from the Six Gun Nation. I encourage you to tune into World Footprints Radio and come out to Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park in southern Alberta to experience the Blackfoot people and culture. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. It won't be long and teens from across the U.S. will be packing their bags and exploring various destinations around the globe. With all the uncertainty in the world, nervous parents at home will wait for that all-too-rare phone call or text confirming that their children are safe. Mike Bowers, Senior Director of Health and Safety at People to People Ambassador Programs, is a teen travel safety expert, and he joins us today to share some of the most critical tips for keeping traveling teens safe. 
Mike, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Mike, you know, most people, when they think about people to people, they they think about the adult program. And so to some, it may be surprising to learn that you have a program for teens as well. Talk to us a little bit about the teen program and the age group that serves. Yeah, actually, the majority of our travelers each year are students and typically uh, range from 10 to 18. Uh, we do run domestic programs, and uh, younger students, elementary students, uh, participate in those programs. Um, but predominantly, it's the student programs, um, and then we do have the adult programs. We also uh, have sports-specific programs. Uh, soccer is a, a big focus for us there right now. So, um, But, yeah, if anything, the adult professional programs is smaller than the rest, um, but uh, we do travel many professionals and mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, in in fact, just for the sake of disclosure, my two little sisters have been uh, accepted into your uh, your young program, and uh, I'm a former applicant for the adult program. So I've known of oh. people to people for some time. <laughs> Fantastic! That's great. So, um, when when you're planning these programs, how do you t- how do you select the countries where teens will travel to, and are they different from some of the adult country programs? Well, clearly that's a little outside of my scope. I don't uh, get involved as much in the marketing and um, in that side of the programming. I I would say that, um, you know, in the countries that we go with students versus the citizen programs, it is slightly different. And and I would say some are the same, but where professionals want to travel uh, differs a little than where it's appropriate to travel students. Um, you know, I'd, I'd pick out Egypt, Jordan, you know, places like that that we currently don't travel students. And I think there's an element of risk in there that um, we just don't choose to to expose the students to or it's, it's not the right venue for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some different locations that some adults go to than students. However, with that said, clearly we wouldn't travel to any place that posed a risk. For example, uh, this year we temporarily uh, suspended all the Egypt programs, um, just with all the the you know actions and and things that were happening in that particular country. Although uh, our partners on the ground over there say that it's probably one of the safest places in the world to be, you know, today. Right. So. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be back there very soon. It was a very popular destination, but again, just in in good conscience, it, it just was the wrong time to be there with sure. the activities that have transpired over the last few months. Sure. Well, I know safety is paramount. Uh, it's a paramount uh, value of, of people to people. And, you know, because there is so much happening in the world, whether it be a natural disaster or you know, civil unrest in, in some of the countries we just mentioned. Um, but, you know, a lot of unpredictable events. What would you say to that parent who may be listening, who may be on the fence about sending their child abroad? Well, clearly there's risk in everything we do. Walking out your front door has an element of risk to it, um, whether you trip on the steps or or so forth. So clearly, you know, you are correct. Uh, Safety is the number one. It's totally all I think about all day long. And the team of 11 people that I work with, that's that's how we spend all of our time, uh, just working to make sure that (coughs) people are safe wherever they go and that there's no undue risk. And 
and clearly we wouldn't hesitate to alter a program, change a program if such a risk were to present itself. And I, I think the recent example of Japan is perfect, although one could argue the actual risk that was there uh, within a few days of the earthquake and then the tsunami uh, happening in Japan, we had uh, made the decision to redirect all the students to other parts of the world. And, and the majority of them have elected to make that transfer as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, again, it, it, uh, part of it is perception, part of it is reality. In our case in Japan, we never travel north of Tokyo. Everything is south. And, and so there was no real radiation concern there. And, and probably a person could have effectively traveled over there. But for, as a parent in my traveling this year. I mean, just naturally, uh, there's some anguish that goes along with that, releasing custody of your child to somebody that you don't maybe know real well. And in a lot of cases, they do uh, know our teachers in the, the areas that they're traveling very well, and, and they're very comfortable with them. But as an organization, they don't necessarily know me. And sure. um, so there's a, a bit of uneasiness with that. So, you know, Japan's an excellent example. Just the perception alone, I don't think you could ever overcome it. And therefore, this organization made a swift decision to uh, reassign people to other parts of the world and I think we were the first to do that so mm. um, and it, that's a tough decision because you know there's a lot of people that were planning to be there a lot of people that wanted to go to that place but yet we just weren't um, willing to accept the the risk right. you know and uh, and the trust value with the parents and and you know they they needed to know and a lot believed it I got a lot of emails from them but they needed to know that we were going to make the right decision and trusted that we would. And in that particular case, we made it fairly quickly. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let, let's talk about some of the the best practices or the, the most critical tips that parents should adhere to uh, and their children in, in order to keep them safe when they, they travel abroad. And I know one of the things that you recommend is uh, to follow the money. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think uh, we could look at that two, two different ways. One, um, as a parent, you know, to be in a position to follow the money is critical. And as a student traveler, or quite honestly, anyone traveling, uh, leaving a trail might be another way to look at it. And, you know, really, I don't travel my my own kids. I have two boys. And I don't travel them without sending them with a, you know, kind of a preloaded bank card. And I always use a Visa or Master Charge because they're widely accepted around the world. But but what's great about it is that I can go online at any point and I can check and see what they're spending money on. A recent trip, it was domestic, but that my son took, he was calling for money a little earlier than we thought he should <laughs> call him for money, right? Right. So we went online and you could quickly see where he was spending every dollar. And I could literally tell you what he did every single day. And I, I could see that he was at Subway and he didn't pay his $5 for a foot long. You know, he paid 20 some dollars. Well, now I know he's buying food for the whole group. So uh -huh. he and I could have those conversations that I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll reload the card, but understand here's when you're coming home. And that might be earlier than you than you thought based on the amount of money that you're spending. But <laughs> but I think from a, a pure safety and health perspective, I can kind of share without going too far into details. Um, a couple of years ago, we had a, a, a student that became um, lost or at least was no longer in our possession. And, uh, you know, we, we put out a huge safety net when a, when an event like that occurs. It's extremely rare, but this 
person was no longer in our possession. And one of the very first things we did is, is went to the money source. And, and what we had found is that individual had left the premises, kind of cloaked themselves and left, and went to an ATM just around the corner. So within a very short amount of time, I had a photo to the police in that country that showed that person extracting money from the ATM. Now, clearly, they were not under any sort of duress. Nobody was there, you know, holding a, you know, a weapon to them. No one was using the card. It was the person that we were seeking. We continued to follow that card, and lo and behold, additional money was taken out at other points around that particular city, and it was very clear to see what they were trying to do or what this person was doing. Now, we, we regained possession shortly, and it turned out that this, this individual just decided to take their own private tour, but it helped us isolate that very quickly. And in a, in a worse situation, if, if you had a student or son or daughter traveling and they really were in trouble, it would give you a roadmap of where they were and maybe give the police some insight of where to focus their attention to find the individual. Sure, sure. Now, a, another point you, uh, uh, another safety tip is uh, a plan to communicate. Is that, uh, are you referring to a, a set plan where a child is instructed to contact uh, home at a given time, or what do you mean by the, the plan to communicate? Well, it's, it's very broad, and it's exactly that, that, you know, what, when you're on travel, clearly you're, you're going to go and you're going to have a lot of experiences, and you're going to be distracted, and the call home is kind of the last thing to come up sometimes. In fact, ironically, the biggest uh, call we get in a request from parents is just to ask us to contact their son or daughter and have them call home because they haven't heard from them for a while. But what I'm suggesting there is is really when you're going to travel internationally, you should always equip yourself with some technology so that you can converse home. And and really, you can activate a lot of cell phone companies will allow you to turn on an international feature. What I can tell you about that is typically you're going to pay the highest rates. Mm-hmm. So it really makes a lot of sense to consider, you know, taking a rental phone because the rental phone is usually a phone for the country that you're in. I provide one or I provide two on every single delegation I send around the world and the phone is local to that region. It's a Europe phone or it's an Australia phone, not a US phone. What's also really neat about them, and something we've designed into our phones, we've we've put a GPS tracking device on it. So in my office during the height of the summer season, it looks a lot like a James Bond movie. And on my multiple screens, I have every single delegation traveling around the world. And a simple click on the icon, and I can literally go down to street level, and, and it interfaces with Google Earth, and I can... I can stand where the individual is standing and turn 360 degrees and see exactly what they're seeing, you know, based on the Google library of photos. So, mm-hmm. um, by the way, that, that phone has gotten so sophisticated, the one we use now, we've even included a panic button. And you can suppress this button on the phone, and it will record 20 seconds of what's going on around you and send an alert to me right away and highlight that option. There's a lot of vendors with those kind of, you know, features out there. You can get panic buttons independent of phones. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work with CellHire, and, I mean, it's simply www.cellhire.com, and they rent phones all over the world. And there's many vendors that do. 
Um, but you're going to get the cheapest rate, and you know because they negotiate phone rates locally, and you're also generally going to get some amount of Sims messages included in that package. So, and usually Sims messages are free, you know, versus the phone call. Right. What I would also say about a phone call too is a parent, you know, use a lot of thought on when to call. Uh, one of the other top issues we deal with is homesickness, and why? Because they get a call from a parent right before they go to bed, and you know, mom's telling them how much she misses them and all that. And when they hang up, then the kid is, you know, the students laying in bed, thinking about home, and all of a sudden, you know, they find themselves with a bit of homesickness. So, just a tip there is, you know, try to try to schedule a call every few days and do it in the morning time. Mm-hmm. Our students get up at the same time every day and uh, they have a very long day, so we know when they're going to be at breakfast. Call them then and talk about the exciting things they're going to do that day. So, well, and, and what are some of the, the other tips that, that you have? One actually addresses the uh, a student apparel. It sure does, and, it, and I, this goes for anybody, not just a student. Uh, this is anybody traveling internationally. You have to respect the place you're going. And, you know, in some countries, we're not necessarily U.S., citizens are not necessarily viewed overly positive. Uh, Some people have a tendency to think we're arrogant, we're loud, we're rude, um, and all that. And hopefully the more we travel, we can change that perception. But, you know, if you go somewhere and you pull out your $150 Nikes and you've got your bling Mm -hmm. all over, your jewelry, you know, the fanciest shirts, it does a couple things. One, it can be offensive to others because you may be traveling in a country where, you know, their annual salary equals the cost of your tennis shoes. Sure. Um, so the other important thing from a safety perspective is you really don't want to stick out. I mean, if I was looking over a crowd and I was a less scrupulous person and I was looking for my next target and I looked out over a courtyard of 100 people or so and one bright, flashy individual sticks out with jewelry all over, you know, the most expensive of clothes, it's going to be a little easier for me to zero in on who my target's going to be, mm-hmm. right? So, so just take that into consideration. Kind of dress down. Leave your bling at home. If you if you have to bring something nice for a special event, go ahead and do that. But uh, but really, you want to kind of blend into the culture and not stick out as a tourist because that's going to heighten you on the selection chart for a target for somebody. Um, that's that's looking for a target you know yeah and i mean actually that's that's a common sense approach and and something that as you mentioned all travelers uh should consider because you do uh set yourself up as a mark uh if you know if you're if you're wearing something flashy or you have expensive uh equipment or or what have you and so um, I hope, you know, travelers listening, and of course our audience is, is much more sophisticated, and so I think they, they understand this point already, but uh, it's just a common sense approach that is applicable to all travelers. Um, you bet. And now your, your final, uh, final two points before we go here, um, have a backup plan. What, is that, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, have a backup really is, you know, just having, you know, have copies of your passports, have copies of your credit cards, things like that. In the event someone were to pick 
pickpocket at you, let's say, and you wanted to call and cancel your credit card, it's a little more difficult to use the number on the back of the card uh, when a crook's running down the, the road with it. So you, you just need to have those copies with you. And I think on a passport, and this happens every year for us, again, we travel tens of thousands of students, but somebody will lose their passport. With a copy of the passport, we are able to get an emergency passport through the embassies fairly quickly. Without that copy, it's much, much more difficult. And, uh, and I, I think I would add something there as well that, you know, when you're traveling to other countries, if you're, if you're traveling with a group like ours, we do a lot of the homework for you. But um, if you're traveling independently on your own, I think it's a really good idea to register with the embassies. Yes. And I mean, simply there, you just www.usembassies.gov, and you go online, and under the you know U.S. Citizen Services, you'll see a tab that allows you to register, and you can do it for any country you're going to visit. For example, in Japan, had you been there when the earthquake hit and the tsunami hit, it would have been much easier for the embassy to track that individual and help families communicate with those that were in Japan than if you hadn't registered at all. And uh, so I just think that's a, a real bright uh, idea for anyone. Again, if you're traveling with an organization such as ourselves, we have multiple avenues to communicate and find you and all that. Although I work uh, diligently with the, the embassies. And in fact, during the um, uh, the pandemic in Japan or in China, we were feeding the embassy a lot of their data, you know, working with the hotels that were doing quarantines and things like that. So, um, you know, we work very closely with the embassies, but if you're traveling independently, very good idea to register in advance. Absolutely. And Mike, these are uh, great uh, safety points, and I thank you so much for sharing those with us. And uh, Mike Bowers is the Senior Director of Health and Safety at People to People Ambassadors Program. Thank you so much for your joining us today. Oh, thank you. When we return, understanding and demystifying autism with Dr. Stephen Shore. Uh, the best minds in research Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. 
Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world, Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com. I'm Cheryl Ann from Spokane, and I'm a big fan of World Footprints Radio. You should listen every Tuesday. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Dr. Stephen Shore is an author, international consultant, and assistant professor at the Amman School of Education at Adelphi University. His research and teaching focuses on matching best practices to the needs of people with autism. Dr. Shore joins us today to discuss the rise of autism and how people around the world are responding to this. Dr. Shore, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're happy to have you. Now, now tell us, how did you become involved in raising awareness about autism? Well, I guess it starts from the very beginning, literally. Uh, after 18 months of typical development, I was with what I call the autism bomb, otherwise known as regressive autism, where I lost functional communication, had meltdowns, tantrums, self-stimulatory behavior, and all those other behaviors that we see in children with autism. Uh, <clears throat> fortunately, uh, I had the, having the parents that I had, even though it took them a full year to find a place for diagnosis, so it was a year that they had to live with this, they refuted the professionals' uh, recommendations for institutionalization convinced that school to take me in about a year. Hmm. And was, <coughs> go ahead. No, when when was this? I'm not trying to uh, give away your age too much, but apparently, when was this? Uh, we're talking about the early mid '60s, when autism was thought to be a type of childhood schizophrenia and caused by poor parenting, poor mothering, to be specific. Hmm. No, I mean, but today we've seen a lot in, in the news. I mean, certainly there's a lot more awareness, um, you know, a lot of, uh, of high-profile celebrities talking about autism. But what do you think is responsible for the rise in the, in the incidence of autism, or is it just that we're more aware of autism today? Well, there's a lot of controversy about that. And some people are looking at environmental concerns, Others think that we may be dealing with a virus that goes, that's undetected and gets transmitted to the fetus from the mother. Uh, the best minds in research believe that autism starts with a genetic predisposition, uh, which then may get triggered by one or more of these things. And again, people are possibly looking at environmental causes. We have people looking at vaccines. Uh, we have still others saying that autism has always been here as much as we see it now, it's just we didn't realize what it was. Mm -hmm. And I 
think with most things, it's the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And do you, what do you uh, think some of the biggest challenges facing people with autism today are, despite this greater awareness? I think the biggest challenge is understanding that uh, the autism spectrum is incredibly wide, it's incredibly diverse, and really what we're looking at is a situation of, I like to think of it as extreme characteristics, so extreme strengths with extreme challenges. And what I often find happening in education and other areas is that there's, there may be too much focus on the challenges uh, without paying uh, proper regard to what strengths there are. And some of them uh, are quite significant. Mm-hmm. And now you you traveled. Um, <clears throat> you continue to travel around the world speaking on autism. How is autism considered in other countries? Well, there's uh, about as much diversity in how autism is considered in other countries as there is diversity within the autism spectrum. Uh, there are countries, uh, for example, who uh, have who have, or I should say, that have enacted special education laws and there is a procedure for children having autism and other special needs and they get taken care of uh, to at least some extent in the educational system. Uh, there are yet other countries where autism and other special needs are viewed with great shame and embarrassment and something to be hidden. And I think that's really something that we need to work on is uh, in these places uh, increasing awareness of autism and finding ways to properly educate people with autism. Uh, in in some ways, though, you know, do you think that some of the challenges that people with autism in in, in these other countries, particularly the the countries that um, may view this as a um, uh, shamefully or as a um, uh, more you know mental uh, illness? Um, do, you, do we see the same in this country and in certain communities as well? Yeah, we do. I mean, uh, I still run across people who are ashamed of their child with autism or ashamed of having a diagnosis of autism and want to keep it hidden, uh, which is why one of my areas of research and advocacy, you might say, is in the area of disclosure. And that is, uh, you know, how do you decide? when to disclose that you have autism and when do you advocate uh, that you have autism and may have some special needs that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Well, what's being done, though, on the international stage um, to, to address this? And, and, you know, is there a, a, an international advocacy group? The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, and it's essentially formed by people with autism, and there are chapters around the world. Uh, there is another one uh, that's uh, known as GRASP, uh, the Global and Regional, Regional Asperger Syndrome Partnership, uh, which also is run for and by people on the autism spectrum and focuses on advocacy. Mm-hmm. And is there much interface um, <coughs> between the, the international groups and the uh, domestic national groups? Uh, I... I haven't seen too much uh, between uh, going on between groups in various countries. So they're not, there's not much collaboration. 
between. I haven't seen, I'd like to see a lot more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I've seen more of, and maybe because I have a, a United States-centric view, is organizations here in the United States reaching out and establishing, you might say, beachheads in other countries. And there may be a lot of interaction going on with those chapters in the other countries. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I know that um, there, you know, there's greater awareness these days. Uh, there's advocacy groups popping up, as we've just discussed. Um, but there's, you know, certainly a lot more that, that needs to be done. But other than the, the things that we've just discussed, what are some of the other encouraging events you see happening in the autism community? Well, one thing that I find very encouraging is that no matter where I where I travel, um, I find that even in the most desolate and destitute areas in terms of resources, um, finding practices, uh, I'm finding uh, instances or areas, or you might say pockets of best practice, uh, often uh, with a strong parental involvement to get them going. And what these organizations tend to do, what do, is they do their research on the internet, they read books, and somehow they seem to understand uh, what people with autism need. And what I'd like to see is uh, more of these types of organizations jo joining forces. Is there, is there a resource, though, that you can share now if we have you know, a listener in the audience who has an autistic child who um, really, and, and this is a new area for them, um, is there a resource at that that you can point them to to help them? Yes, there is. And I would point them to the Autism Society. And their website address is autism-society.org. And that's a good place to start. There are chapters. I'm on their national board, and there are chapters in every state. I know that uh, you'll be here uh, in D.C. in our neck of the woods uh, shortly attending an event at the, the White House that uh, specifically uh, addresses the autism community. What, what can you tell us about this event and, and uh, will you have a, a role in it or are you pr just participating in a meeting here? Well, I haven't heard much about what is going to happen in the event. Uh, I'm told that we'll receive that information shortly. I guess we'll have to because I'll be there next week. <laughs> uh, but all, all I know is that a certain number of people have been selected to participate in discussion and other activities uh, within the White House on, uh, to uh, commemorate Autism Awareness Month. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be able to report much more uh, once I'm through with the event. I'm very encouraged that the White House is um, is is showing some attention to to this issue, and 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 I'm I'm really pleased with the uh, greater awareness by the celebrity attention that's been paid uh, to this, and so I think that's certainly uh, very encouraging, also for people within the uh, autism community. Yes, I, I think that is very encouraging because as more people disclose that they either have autism or they have a child with autism, especially people with a lot of visibility. Uh, that helps uh, those parents and others who are just new to the autism community to understand that uh, there's a whole group of us out here. Uh, they're not alone. Uh, you have our support. And together we'll make the world a better place for people with autism.
Oh, absolutely. And I, I thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stephen Shore, for what you're doing. And uh, certainly thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. Well, it's my pleasure and honor to do so. Thank you for sharing this time with us today. We always look forward to seeing you here and to connecting with you on our multiple platforms and social networks, all which you can find from our website at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you again real soon. Until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.